Let it never be said that in the Anglican tradition we are not about the Word of God. Thank you, Austin, for um, reading the Word of God to us in uh, such a lengthy passage there from Genesis. In Book 6, line 171 of Homer's poem, the epic poem, the Idyssey, the Iliad, rather, we read, it is idiocy, yes. I guess that's the combination of the Iliad and the Odyssey. <laughs> we read, like the generations of leaves, the lives are the lives of mortal men. Like the generations of leaves are the lives of mortal men. Now the wind scatters the old leaves across the earth. Now the living timber bursts with new buds, and spring comes round again. And so with men, as one generation comes to life, another dies away. This is the position that we find Abraham in as we open in the Bibles, in our Bibles today, to our first lesson. Abraham and his generation is fading away. And the scripture intentionally pivots and turns to the next generation. What will happen with God's covenant promise? What will happen with God's covenant promise? That's the implicit question here. And we're meant to think about that. Will this be the end of all the promises in Genesis chapter 12? Of course, the answer is no. No. That God's promise endures from generation to generation. As human beings, we fear the unknown, don't we? We fear the unknown. And that's part of what's being struggled with here, is what will happen. The unknown What's outside of our control turns out a lot more than we think. One thing historians always point to with one of my personal heroes, George Washington, the first president of this country, was his firm persistence in the cause of the American War for Independence and his fearlessness. After the war, he wrote to his brother, John A. Washington, the following in a letter. He said, by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability and expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions at every side. Whenever people would ask or write to George Washington about his fearlessness in battle, or his confidence that this new country, the United States, would succeed, he would remind them of God's providence. He would remind them that it wasn't indeed in his hands, but in his Lord's. And when you scour the sermons of preachers of that era, even into the 19th century, you see a firm reliance on God's providence continually talked about. And yet the term providence has largely faded away from our national vocabulary. And it's also faded away even in the church amongst us preachers, which begs a question, why? 
Why? Why don't we talk about providence anymore? What is it? What is it? For those of us that aren't familiar with the concept, divine providence is simply this. Divine care and divine guidance in destiny. Divine care and divine guidance in destiny. And today's Genesis reading, the reason that we read all of it today, is because you have to read the whole part of this chapter to see the big picture. And what we have demonstrated to us is God's divine providence fulfilling the promise of Genesis 12 for the next generation. That promise that God gave to Abraham to be the father of nations, to have offspring that would occupy the Holy Land, to be blessed, greatly blessed and prosper, in order that he might be a blessing to others. Through the length of this story, we find Isaac's wife, and we see the hand of providence. As we open to the rest of the text today, the first thing that we might notice as I've already mentioned, is the length of the text. Alan Ross, one of the scholars, calls this a novella. A novella, a short novel in Genesis. It's a complete story. It's not from multiple sources as parts of Genesis are. And so there's this idea that God here is acting and God is taking the story forward. And so as we look at this passage it's important that we see that it's a study in trusting in God's providential hand, first and foremost. And secondly, we see that it's also a witness to God's covenantal loyalty. The Hebrew term is hesed. Hesed. God's covenantal loyalty to his people. And part of that, of course, is providence. The two go together. Trust in God's good care builds faith in us and therefore yields obedience by us because of our faith in God and His providence. Followers of God trust in God and His covenantal loyalty to us as His sons and daughters. And therefore that inspires loyalty in us to do the things that He's commanded us to do. Look at the text again in Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. We read, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Notice how the passage starts, in what way? With a declaration of God's providence. Abraham is not central to the story here, the narrator is telling us, but rather something behind the events essential to the story that it's God who's prospered him it's God who's blessed him we continue on in verse 2 and Abraham said to his servants the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had put your hand under my thigh verse 3 that I may make you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and earth and the God of the earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred, 
and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. Notice, what's Abraham saying here? He's witnessing to God's providence, and he's talking about the fact that God will intervene with his angel, even. He will go even to that point to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. But, notice the inspired obedience here, too. Repeated here, do not take my son back to that land. Do not do that. Why? Abraham here is committed to God's promise. He's seen that God's been faithful, and he's not about to undo all that God has done for him in his life. Notice he asks the servant to swear by the one God. Abraham reiterates to his servant how God's been so faithful to him over the years. And he has certainty that God will bring this to completion. This, friends, is a man who's experienced the faithfulness of God and who walks with certainty to the end of his life. Again, a great model for us. It's not like Abraham was perfect. It's not like Abraham didn't have doubts over the years. But here we see the end of the trajectory of faith that he's been on as he entrusts this task to his servant, probably Eleazar. The servant also has faith, however, notice. Scripture next tells us that this servant goes to the land of Nahor. The person of Nahor, remember, is Abraham's brother and also a grandfather. Abraham sent this servant back to his homeland to find Isaac a wife. But notice what happens before the servant enters into the city. What does he do? Look at verses 12 through 14 in the first passage. What does the servant do before entering the city? He prays. Thank you. Yeah, he prays. And how does he pray? Look at the words that he uses. And he, that is the servant, said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing at the spring of the water, and the daughters of men are of men of the city are coming out to draw. Let the young woman whom I say shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now it's an interesting thing that the servant uses this common occurrence, right, of, of women coming down to draw water. This was known in that culture, right, as something that, that young women did. But 
notice before that how he prays. He focuses on God being faithful to his master. Did you see that? Let the young woman, uh, before that, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. And he said, sorry, but back in verse 12, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and, here's the key, show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behind that, those words, steadfast love, is an appeal to God's covenantal love, to that hesed, to that hesed. That God's faithfulness will make this happen, will bring it about. We don't see that at first, right? But that's what's going on here. And God immediately answers the prayer, doesn't he? Look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking even, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nehor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jars on her shoulder. And she fulfills the test that the servant sets up about asking about water. In addition to fulfilling that sign, Rebekah also demonstrates the virtue of hospitality here. Gordon Wenham makes the point that we, as the reader, get a lot of information here about her that the servant does not. Did you catch that? About who she is? Look at what the narrator says in verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And then we enter back into real time. But you see, we're getting information on who she is that the servant doesn't know. But the servant nevertheless continues faithfully in his task. And Rebecca then tells the servant her identity in verse 26, where we read this. And the, and, and the um, servant rather responds, and the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his, once again, steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And so we see the servant responding here with another prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving. Have you noticed in this, in this passage, there's a lot of bowing down to the Lord, a lot of asking for things, but also thanking God for the great gifts that he's given. After giving gifts and being invited to her brother Laban's house, the servant again testifies to Laban and also to Rebekah about what the Lord has done for his master. Look at verse 35 this time in the next reading. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And to Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all things he has. Do you see what the servant continues to testify to who God is to Abraham? Here to Abraham's kinsman. He relates the whole thing to him. We won't read through it because it's lengthy. But suffice it to say that the, the servant relates to him what 
Abraham, not only what Abraham has been blessed with, but how Abraham has commissioned him, trusting in God's faithfulness. And so, how do they respond? Look at verse 58 on page 5. Look at verse 58. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent her away. So they sent away Rebekah with her sister, their sister rather, with her nurse and Abraham's servants and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Before that, they discern that this is the will of the Lord. Look back at verse 51. Behold, Rebekah is before you, they say to the servant. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Do you see what's going on here? That they're actually saying a prophecy. They're actually testifying without knowing it to God's goodness. When they say, our sister may become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Now that's just a general blessing, of course, but what do we see in this, in the covenant? Who is the offspring of Rebekah and Isaac eventually? Jesus Christ. And so not only are many nations blessed, but indeed Jesus does, in fact, possess the gates of the enemy, the ultimate enemy of mankind, Satan himself, and wins and banishes him. In Hebrews, Rebecca, in, in the Hebrew, Rebecca literally jumps off of her camel. She's so excited when she sees Isaac. We see that in the next section here, in verses 64 through 67, we read, And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man working in the field to meet us, walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. God's providence, friends, is at work here, and is acknowledged throughout this passage by all the different characters, by all the different characters, from Abraham to the servant, even to um, Rebecca's family, and certainly to Rebecca as she faithfully goes to this unknown land, to this unknown relative to become his wife. God's providence and faithfulness has been witnessed again and again to us, and what this passage is saying to us and challenging us over is, are you as confident in God's providence as these characters in the Bible? Are you as confident in God's providence and trustworthiness as these characters in the Bible? Earlier I asked, 
why has the idea of providence faded? And I believe it's because there's actually a spiritual poison that's seeped into the church, at least in our culture, maybe in others too, that's displaced providence. It's the idea of self-reliance. The idea of self-reliance. The idea of individual independence. The idea that somehow we and our wills are in control of our life. St. James warns us about this in chapter 4 of his epistle to the church, where he writes, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know? Why, he says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And so in place of providence, we have put our own arrogant schemes. And we stand convicted by the apostle here. Because we don't even talk about providence anymore. It's God's hand that's behind Abraham and Sarah and all of today's story. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12, tells us that, where we read, And so, from this one man, that is Abraham, and he, as good as dead, Hebrews tells us, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. It is God's will, his hand, his providence, his guardianship, and his covenant of circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament that brings this about, that's a great gift to us. So far as our justification before God, so far as our right relationship before God, you cannot make it happen. You need Jesus' sacrifice and atonement on the cross to make that happen. So far as your sanctification as a Christian, your being made holy, you cannot make that happen. You need the power of the Holy Spirit working in you to make that happen. So far as creating a parish, going from a little Bible study here to a full parish in the Anglican Church, you and I did not make that happen. The Holy Spirit has made that happen. So far as bringing up your children or talking to your loved ones in the faith and encouraging them in the faith and making them faithful members of the church, you cannot make that happen. The Holy Spirit makes that happen. So far as evangelism and proclaiming the word, you can proclaim it, but you cannot save other people. You cannot even lead them to salvation. It is the Holy Spirit who leads them and saves them and makes it happen. So far as finding the right spouse, for some of us who have not yet, you cannot make that happen. It is the Holy Spirit who makes that happen. Are you getting the theme? Is it coming through? In Psalm 127, we read, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In vain it is that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. All of these things cannot be made to happen, but have it happen by God's divine hand, by his providence. And as frustrating as this may be at times, God's providence, friends, is actually a gift. You see, we live in a world with people who are being crushed and entrapped with the burdensome words and the toil, the anxious toil of a well-meaning but utterly wrong saying that we live by. You can be whatever you want to be. And another one, you can change the world. And another one, you follow your dreams to make yourself happy. Yeah, these are said with good motivation, but this idea is burdensome and crushing if you actually buy into it. Just look at your own calendars. Just look at your own way of living. If you're relying entirely on your planning and yourself and your power and your energy to make all of these things happen, you're doing exactly what St. James is warning against. You don't know where you're going to be tomorrow. You don't know what happens or what city you're going to be in. Now, he's not saying that we shouldn't be thoughtful and plan, but there's a difference between being thoughtful and planning and thinking that you're in control. Divine providence protects us. It's a gift. It takes away that stress. St. Chrysostom says this. He says, Do you not see God's providence emerging clearly in every situation and how the Lord arranges your futures? Without God's hand, we can do nothing. Service to God, as we pray in the Book of Common Prayer daily, is perfect freedom. The scriptures, our prayer books, our hymnals, all remind us of God's providential hand, despite the fact that we don't talk about it today or live by it. So friends, identify God's providence in your life. Take a moment and think about it. Where has God's hand protected you? Where has God's hand provided for you? Where has God's hand led you? How has God been faithful to you as a son or daughter of him? And where have you not given him that praise and thanksgiving? For in acknowledging it, we see that it's in fact he who stitches together the moments of our life. We vanish like a vapor. He is eternal. And when you identify those times, talk with your children, talk with your grandchildren, talk with your friends, talk with your co-workers about what God has done for you. I was blessed enough to know both my grandfathers, very, very well actually, and both of them would continually say to me, they would reflect on their life and say, I saw God's hand in this. Boy, God kept me out of that combat situation in Korea. Boy, I saw how he prevented me from being a 
from making a dire mistake in business that one time, they would talk with me about that. And you know what that was? It was a testimony to God's providence and care for them. That's an important part of our faith that we discuss and testify to with those we love. And it's important that we talk about that with those who don't know Jesus, too. Yeah, people will look at you like you're crazy. But do you see how testifying to that actually helps release people from that crushing burden of having to make themselves happy, of having to make themselves successful, of having to make themselves acceptable? You've been made successful. You've been made acceptable. You are being made into the image of Christ by his providence and grace. So let us talk about that. We can rely, like Abraham, upon God's trustworthy providence, not just for ourselves, but for generations to come. Let us talk about it and be steadfast in it. Would you please join me in prayer? O God, your never-failing providence sets in order all things, both in heaven and on earth. Put away from us all hurtful things and give us those things that are profitable for us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.